completely unedited? Yeah. Mm, okay, I'll try to not swear. No, you can swear. You can absolutely swear. This is Van Color. My name is Mo Amir, and today on This is Van Color, I am joined by a world-famous Vancouver-based journalist covering both Canada-China relations and current affairs right here on the West Coast. She was the Beijing-based correspondent for AFP, the world's oldest news agency. She also served as the China and Mongolia correspondent for the top German news agency, DPA. And in Hong Kong, she reported for the South China Morning Post, The Economist, and The Associated Press. Her work has appeared in The Guardian, BBC World, The Atlantic, Newsweek, and Al Jazeera, just to name a few outlets. She is the winner of the 2012 Human Rights Press Award for her story on the living conditions of refugees in Hong Kong. She has a Master's of Journalism at Columbia University and she studied Chinese history here in Vancouver at the University of British Columbia. And if that is not impressive enough, she did us all a big favor when her work led to the firing of Canada's ambassador to China, John McCallum. She is a superstar. She is a national correspondent at the Toronto Star here via the magic of Zoom. She is Joanna Chu. Joanna how are you? Uh, hi, Mo. I don't know if I can live up to your really enthusiastic introduction of me. <laughs> <laughs> you absolutely can. You've done such incredible work, and I'm so happy that I get to chat with you. I've been wanting to do a full episode with you for a long time, and one where we don't talk about my literal <laughs> dreams, as you covered in the Toronto Star earlier this yeah. year. <laughs> I did a short call about you know weird COVID dreams, and you told me all about your strange dolphin fixation <laughs> well and then you wrote about it yeah. <laughs> and you were totally cool with it so absolutely i've been dying to ask you this mm-hmm. when you conduct an interview that has global repercussions like literally prime minister justin trudeau fired his ambassador to china because of your work do you get a trophy for that uh no it's more i feel really awkward um yeah it's just you don't expect that because you go trying to talk to someone like all journalists you ask tough questions you don't expect like a seasoned politician ambassador to kind of slip up and say things that you know force a prime minister to dismiss him so that was pretty shocking for me so i wasn't like celebrating or asking for a trophy like i was um you know pretty shocked like the day after this was uh last january so it seems like ages ago but you know the huawei story is so you know top of the main discussion points when it comes to canada china relations still being so pretty much awful right now i think that they should get you a bust of john mccallum like a little statue to put up on your mantle oh my god (laughs) (laughs) we might get into him in in a little bit I want to talk about this bizarre story out of Surrey that you covered a few weeks ago. So there's this guy, Benson Gao Bing Chen. He's an independent journalist. He's a YouTube personality. He's very outspoken against China's authoritarian government. And his cul-de-sac in this very suburban neighborhood of Surrey 
has been the site of protests and clashes. Can you walk me and the listeners through this story from the beginning? Because it's incredibly bizarre. Yeah. Um, so this, you know, the roots of the story happened a couple of years ago where this Chinese billionaire, Miles Kwok, also known as Miles Guo, Wengui, um, he, he fled um, uh, China saying that, you know, he had all sorts of secrets about the Chinese Communist Party and he, he wasn't safe. Um, but it was really like hard to prove what he was saying. Um, and so far, like all of, you know, the so-called secrets he said he's had, a lot of it hasn't been, you know, legitimate. A lot of it hasn't debunked as conspiracies or just, you know, not valid. Um, and, you know, I, I would follow it at the time when he left um, because there was so much buzz about oh, what, what he's going to say. But when he ended up not really revealing anything, a lot of people stopped paying attention. But in the meantime, um, he's been busy Um Somehow in the last year or so, he's been able to gather this international network of supporters under, you know, this self-named whole network of G News, GTV. So he appears in all these videos where he's basically like a kind of like a messiah-like figure. Um, hmm. He's like literally like beating a drum, wearing like a militaristic costume, um, kind of rallying up his supporters to do things he wants. Um, and he's also teamed up with Steve Bannon, the former White House uh, strategist for, for Trump. Um, and they co-founded this new group called the New Federal State of China. And this summer, they proclaimed it with like airplanes, flying banners around New York. And suddenly it was this international network uh, with a lot of people. And um, they had set up uh, these proprietary live streaming um, websites, like a news site, um, uh, something like a YouTube platform. And, you know, members told me they set it up because they didn't want to get censored by Twitter, YouTube. They wanted their own ecosystem. Um, so if you've heard like rumors about Hunter Biden sex tapes and COVID-19 coming from a Chinese lab as a bioweapon, um, a lot of these theories actually come from this group. Um, they have like extensive English language, basically propaganda. I don't know if I can say that, but, you know, conspiracy based material. Um, so this was, you know, you know, there's a lot of misinformation on the internet. Um, but what has happened is that um, in a series of videos, uh, the leader, Miles Kwok, he, he listed a bunch of um, these pro-democracy activists, these figures that have been active around the world, uh, often Chinese immigrants uh, who have spoken out against Beijing's um, human rights issues, authoritarian rule for decades, some of them. And he said that they were actually Chinese spies and um, his supporters should, you know, go get them. He used kind of vague language about how they should get them. You know, they're traitors, uh, they're spies, they work for Beijing. And in Canada, the manifestation of that is that um, since September 14th, for pretty much every single day, a group of protesters has shown up outside this independent journalist house in Surrey, B.C., a really quiet cul-de-sac, very suburban um, every day, sometimes for six hours a day, uh, shouting, uh, marching around, uh, calling him a spy. Um, so, you know, he's been terrified and so has his neighbors because... And so and so, who is Benson Gao? Like, I, I, why is he being protested and why is he being targeted by this group? So Gao moved to Canada from Beijing in 2004. He was a pretty established journalist um, in Beijing, so working for pretty much as legitimate of news organizations as he can in China because of the 
censorship uh, issues there. So once he moved to Canada, he got jobs for Chinese language media in Canada. Um, he's since become independent. Um, he started up a YouTube channel. So he's pretty high profile among uh, people who consume Chinese language media. And because, like I said, like Miles Guo's um, videos often contain, you know, things that aren't factual, he's actually been calling out um, some of these. Um, Benson has been calling out Miles. Yeah, he's a, one of the more outspoken, probably the most outspoken Canadian critic of Miles. Um, so his theory is that Miles sent these protesters to his door to try to intimidate him, to silence him. And these protesters, are they Canadian citizens, I presume? So my first story in October, I went to interview them and I went to interview Benson and his neighbors. And I spoke to the protesters and a lot, like they were open to speaking with me because um, to them, they think they're in the right, uh, that Benson is actually a spy, um, a danger to them and their families. Um, at least that's what they say. Um a lot of them said they were recent immigrants from China and a lot of them weren't Vancouver citizens, like Vancouver residents. Some of them flew in from Halifax and Winnipeg and they have members in Toronto. So um, the Wall Street Journal recently reported that uh, Miles raised 300 million US for, for his um, you know, set of organizations, companies, those media companies. So if they raised 300 million, it kind of, shows that this group at least is linked to a lot of money. Um, so they've been able to take shifts. They have an RV where they can go, you know, to the toilet, um, make lunch. <laughs> They're very well. Set. Wow. When it's raining, they have these like telephone booth things where they put it on and it's like this rainproof box that they march around in. Um, so they have, you know, resources and, I think police and others weren't sure what to make of this group. Um, a couple of them in videos seemed to be more belligerent, like yelling, while some of them were just, you know, silently waving signs. So even I was surprised when I think uh, last week, um, two of them was caught on video just brutally attacking a friend of Benson's. Um, his friend, Louis Huang, who is also uh, a co-founder of a group Benson is in called the Vancouver Society of Freedom, Democracy, Human Rights in China, um, came to pick him up to help him as like a translator for meetings with city officials to talk about what to do with the situation. Um, and for some reason, two of these protesters dragged him to the ground and kicked him repeatedly in the head. Uh, he ended up being hospitalized, um, broken bones under his eye, you know, teeth knocked out, like, you know, his whole head oh my was God. swollen. So that was really shocking for, for the whole neighborhood. And uh, our, my, our paper reported on that development as well. So I'm looking at this thing two months. These protesters are clearly well organized. Like you said, they have an RV. They sort of have a system planned out. Is there any evidence to show that they are being paid? Because I'm just thinking of anyone taking a, a pilgrimage, even from across the country, to come and protest. To do it for two months, it has to come at a cost, right? So, so I asked these protesters, like, at first, they were very friendly to me. Um, they were like, oh, we looked at your website. You have good articles about China and critical of China. Um, so they said things like, oh, we're all volunteers. Um, 
from what I gather, some of them are independently wealthy. One of the protesters there, who was kind of like a administrator or some sort of leader, she had, you know, a box, a binder full of information to hand out to me. Um, she said she actually tried to transfer um, around 30,000 US dollars to Miles Gua to invest in, you know, his whole suite of companies. Um, but her bank, her Canadian bank stopped her. I was like, oh, wow, that's a lot of money that you wanted to invest. And she was like, oh, that's my money. So I can use it the way I want. Um, so I'm not sure. Like some of them seem like they already have money. Um, and I haven't been able to find anything beyond like how the structure works. Like, um, you know, Washington Journal reported that Steve Bannon uh, got some sort of payment for his partnership and, and this kind of thing, but it's really unclear um, how this organization is set up. Um, I reached out to them and asked all the questions. I reached out to Steve Bannon's um, PR person and she just sent me a bunch of, you know, anti-Biden posts. <laughs> so yeah, I think um, I've been chatting with people like who are in New York who are really in the know and they say it's pretty tough. Like you would kind of need like a whistleblower within the organization to try to, you know, expose what's going on. Um, and so far that it hasn't happened. When we talk about these protesters, do they have a goal? Do they want the Canadian police or Canadian authorities to arrest Benson? Like what is their ultimate goal in this protest? Yeah. So they say like after every day they protest outside his house for several hours, they go on and they kind of march or they drive to one of several um, local police stations around the area, pretty much a different one every time to try to present evidence that Benson is a spy. And they do want police to arrest him, to to stop him. Um, yeah, and they, and they also, the group itself, um, wants to promote the idea that Beijing is behind the COVID-19. It's a bioweapon. Um, so that's, you know, that's part of their protest signs as well. It's a bioweapon. Like China's trying to spread this around the world on purpose to, to kill people. What is their supposed evidence that Benson is working as a spy? It's very um, circumstantial. Like they would send me like images of Benson wearing like a Chinese military outfit. And then I showed it to Benson. He's like, oh, that was for a skit. I was, you know, playing the part of whatever. And, and I up and it was a skit. Um, and they would say things like, oh, he says he's outspoken against Beijing, but he travels to China frequently. So what's up with that? He must be pretending to be critical. Um, so then, you know, that's not really evidence. Um, there's not really rhyme or reason. Sometimes people travel to China and they get detained and questioned, and sometimes they don't. Some journalists can go in and out. Um, so then again, that's not like hard evidence of anything. Um, but basically, it's things like that. Is there anything independent of this group that might suggest that Benson is on the take from Beijing or from Chinese authorities? No, it hasn't arisen, as far as I know, independently of this group. And when you look at the other people who have been targeted around the world, like there's a Christian pastor in Texas. Um, he's been he's helped get dissidents um, out of China, like um, say a human rights lawyer's wife and her daughters, like he helped them escape China by foot uh, through Thailand. He set up a safe house. Um, so this pastor, Bob Fu, you know, risked a lot of his personal safety to try to get dissidents out of China. So 
So he's also being called a Chinese spy, um, which really doesn't make sense because um, you'd think Beijing wouldn't want these high profile people escaping from China. Um, Mm -hmm. The U.S. authorities, I think part of the story is how Canada has treated this group. Um, In the U.S., the FBI was involved, the bomb squad was involved, and they, you know, they whisked this family, this this pastor's family to a safe house as soon as there were death threats. Um, Benson has sent me videos that he says are death threats. Um, Police told me they have received them and they're still looking at them. Um, But so far, their advice to Benson is basically, oh, stay inside the house, don't go outside and confront them. Um, So Benson and his neighbors are you know, very upset. They think um, the RSNP aren't doing enough to protect them and they look to elsewhere in the world and see police doing things. Um, and it's like, what's going on? Why isn't uh, Surrey police trying to do more to protect us? Um, but, you know, they did arrest those two protesters who who attacked uh, his friend. Um, but I'm not sure if he's been formally charged yet. Uh, I checked a few days ago and uh, Louis Huang, the friend, uh, hasn't been interviewed by police yet. So I'm not sure if there's some sort of hold up in the, in the process. Setting aside that assault, is this type of protest protected by Canadian law? Because part of me looks at it and it looks like harassment, right? Like it's the guy's house and you're out there for two months. I think you even consulted with my friend, Paul Doroshenko, about this. Yeah. Yeah. I spoke with Paul, a criminal lawyer in in Vancouver, and I asked him like, what's, what do you think about this? And um, he said, let me look up what he said. He said, he said there's like a balance between, there is a charter, uh, Canadian Charter of Rights protection for peaceful protests. Um, But it's kind of, especially now with the attack, it's kind of questionable whether um, the protest is legal. And even police told me that they're now reevaluating the activities to see whether it's kind of gone beyond the line. Before they were saying, well, they're on public land, they're in the cul-de-sac and they're not, you know, in people's driveways anymore like they were before. Um, So it's hard for them to say this is illegal before the attack, you know? Uh, Paul felt that um, the family and the neighbors had a case to ask for a court injunction to to basically say that this is harassment. They're being made prisoners in their own home in order to avoid being a victim of a crime. So Doroshenko said, you know, this seems ridiculous that they're staying home because they're scared of getting hurt. And because someone was physically attacked, it seems that family and the neighbors fear was well-founded. When we look at the other personality here, Miles, he is one of the richest men in China or was one of the richest men in China. As you said, he had to flee China. I was reading that there were allegations of corruption and kidnapping and fraud and even rape. What else do we know about Miles? I think basically what you've read is like what we know. Um, There's allegations, like all these rumors swirling around why he had to leave. Um, You know, people have shared a lot of uh, speculation with me about why he's putting so much effort into making this group. Like maybe he's trying to provide leverage of some sort that he has control over um, this network all over the world. Um, But really he hasn't expressed what his end end game is. He says the end game is to take down the Chinese Communist Party, um, to remove it. And the new federal state of China is an alternative Chinese state. So, so that's what they state. Those are the official goals. 
but there might there might be a lot like you know i think your hunch is correct maybe everyone's hunch is correct like there's more to the story than than we know so you know i hope more journalists uh can keep digging into this because you know the stakes are pretty high like they could decide another person is a chinese spy they could think i'm a chinese spy um I'll defend you, Joanna. I will stand up for you if that happens. Yeah, like, um, yeah I think more people should know about this group, um, how well resourced they are, and the fact that, you know, I've been looking into this for so long, uh, for several months, and I don't know much about them means, like, you know, it's, it's kind of strange. And again, the, the name of this new group is the New Federal State of China. Is that right? Yeah. And I guess that's sort of the confusing part, right? Like Benson Gao, he's vehemently anti-Chinese Communist Party. And these protesters and this group and Miles, they claim to be Mm anti-CCP. And yet they're clashing amongst each other, (laughs) I guess, accusing, sort of accusing each other of, uh, of being turncoats. Yeah, basically. And, you know, the latest target is even more egregious because, uh, uh, Tang Biao, he's a human rights activist and lawyer in China who's, you know, very, very high profile, very well respected. He's a visiting scholar at Harvard Law School. And while he was literally teaching a course on human rights in China, in his home, you know, the same group of protesters showed up outside his home and called him a Chinese spy. Um, and he was, sorry, where where was he when this happened? He was inside his home teaching a university course on Chinese human rights violations. Um, where? where? Um, I think he's based in, I think, New Jersey. Okay, so in the United States. The States, yeah. But he's affiliated with Harvard. Um, yeah, so all these people, like, when you look at it, um, it's to Beijing, like the actual Chinese Communist Party, they must be looking at all this and feeling pretty happy about it because it's, it's stoking so much confusion and the people who are being targeted are its strongest and most effective critics overseas. When you have a dissident or someone of Chinese nationality that has left the country and they speak out against the Chinese government, how is it that they are then able to go back to China? And how are they provided certain protections? Do you have any insight into that? Because I am curious, because we we know that China is an authoritarian government. So how do dissidents, how are they able to come back to China in that case? Well, some some avoid it. Um, some, you know, don't go to Beijing, where it's kind of um, like I lived in China, so I kind of know. It almost seems like a whole collection of different countries, like uh, literally for, for International Pride Month uh, in Beijing, like all the activists were very, you know, careful. They were gathering in like tiny groups of like tiny little pride stickers and not daring to do much besides that. But then I took a high speed four hour train to Shanghai and there are literally disco parties, like lion dances and a whole bunch of like hundreds of people who are, were like out and proud and celebrating being gay and lesbian by. And that was also China, <laughs> but yeah four-hour train right away. So I guess China is not as much of a monolith as people would think. Um, A lot of the policing depends on the regional police and it depends on where you are and who wants to impress, you know, Beijing more. Um, It depends on a whole bunch of factors. So there's been people who were really confident because they were critical of Beijing in Australia or Canada or the States and 
they continued to kind of test it out and and travel to China and they you know didn't even get stops. So there are some um, who did that for years and then suddenly they were detained or questioned or um, in some cases arrested for long term. So before then they had no problems. So the actual kind of situation of being a dissident, being able to you know visit family in China, um, there's no really like black or white answers on how safe you'll be, whether you'll be detained. It might depend on what's happening that month. There might be like a key political meeting. So people are more tense than usual uh, among Chinese authorities. Um, so it's a bunch of factors. I want to go back to this link to Steve Bannon. And I know you didn't get a ton of answers there, but again, Steve Bannon is the co-founder of Breitbart News. And as you mentioned, he is the former White House chief strategist for U.S. President Donald Trump. What is Steve Bannon's relationship to Miles Guo? Uh, you sort of talked about them being business partners or starting these media groups, but is there anything else that we know about Bannon's involvement with Miles? Like Bannon kind of, he's, you know, considered a co-founder of the federal state, but definitely in all the videos, Miles Guo is a central figure. Sometimes, you know, there's videos of both of them. Um, Actually, Bannon was arrested for fraud um, for a different matter while he was on Miles' yacht. Um, so they seem to hang out a lot. And, you know, there's lots of photos of him, like, hugging and, like, being really, really close. Um, as far as what Bannon adds to the relationship, it's unclear. Like, maybe it could be, you know, certain connections or a certain sense of legitimacy of uh, being affiliated with the former White House chief strategist. So I'm sure that's part of it, but nothing is transparent. Like journalists have been asking these questions and they're not getting answers from, from either party. So, you know, they declined to comment to, to every media outlet, Washington Post, Washington Journal. So yeah, it's unclear. Has Steve Bannon said anything about anyone like Benson or, Anyone else that is sort of being targeted by this group? Has, has Steve Bannon ever commented on them directly? I don't think so. Like all of the videos, mostly in Chinese, are showing Maya's Guo, um, you know, naming those names. Um, you know, these are the targets. These are the traitors. Um, Steve Bannon doesn't appear in any of the videos that, I, that I've been able to see. So, and I did ask his, uh, you know, uh, press relations, like, do you condone this targeting of dissidents like uh does that and condone what's happening um and you know no response so from my understanding and i think this is a fascinating piece of trivia steve bannon said that his film claws of the red dragon which is of course mm -hmm. a very anti-ccp anti-chinese government film he said that it, it was inspired by your very interview with the former Canadian ambassador to China, John McCallum, who we mentioned at the top of the show. What was it about that interview that Bannon found so inspiring? Mm -hmm. um, so I deliberately didn't try to contact him after I noticed the trailer for this film. And like, I thought it was a joke at first. Like someone sent it to me, like, I think this is based on you. And I'm like, uh -huh. no. But then it said on the actual website, like, this film is inspired by Joanna Chu. <laughs> wow. Um, and her interview with uh, the former ambassador. And then it went on to, like, her, the character's name is Jane Lee. So it is fictionalized. Um, so Jane Lee is 
it's kind of portrayed as like this unicorn, like this Chinese ethnic person who is critical of China. And she's like fighting for democracy, even though she's Chinese and they keep emphasizing her ethnicity um, as like this unusual factor and how she's like a good journalist. Um, so I think maybe there was an element of, oh, I can't believe she's Chinese and critical of, you know, whatever, like doing something, doing work that leads to this ambassador being dismissed who um, Beijing might have liked seeing in that position. So maybe it was because I happened to come from Chinese descent, but actually I'm not even from mainland China, I'm from Hong Kong. And, and anyone who knows about Hong Kong knows that it's a city of protests, like people who speak up all the time. So it's nothing unusual <laughs> about the kind of work I do. Just on a personal level, how does that connection make you feel? Um, like, I actually kind of go into it in this book I'm working on um, that I haven't announced yet, but, you know, you're the first to know. Um, it's announced here now. Yeah, it's announced here now, a debut of my, my book on China, Global Relations. Um, but basically, like, I, I criticize how there's all these um, really simplistic narratives about China. Uh, being a book being like the you know the scourge of all the world's problems including how the U.S. has from the coronavirus and often it's a narrative that conflates Chinese people and the Chinese government all together um, so I think that's damaging and I think that kind of explains this fascination with like, um, ethnically Chinese journalists writing uh, about Chinese uh, issues is that it's hard for a lot of these people who believe and promote these really simplistic stories to understand the nuance. <laughs> There's so much diversity among the Chinese diaspora community and the, the story itself um, is so complicated. Uh, what it's like on the ground in China, like I said, like Beijing being so different from Shanghai, just these two cities, is not really portrayed in all of these very, very simplistic narratives that sometimes says more about, um, you know, U.S. anxieties and U.S. domestic interests. And it really says about what China is actually like or what China is actually doing. So there is obviously a diplomatic crisis between Canada and China. There's the Meng Wanzhou case, which I covered in a podcast, episode 86 with Sandy Garcino. There's Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor, who are Canadians being wrongfully detained in, in China. And there's a whole host of trade issues as well. For a long time, we were courting, and when I say we, the Canadian government was courting Chinese investment in Canada. And Canadian companies were exporting natural resources there as well. It was It is a big market. And these things are still happening. But the relationship went from very cooperative to almost antagonistic. Where did the relationship break down? Was it the extradition of Meng Wanzhou? Yeah, it was exactly that moment. Um, for decades, like since Trudeau Sr., Pierre Trudeau reestablished diplomatic ties with China. Um, it's kind of been dual tracks. Like um, when it comes to the economy, conversations were just focused on trade and economy and economic ties and building, you know, tourism flows and, and such. And then on the side, you know, the Canadian government would lobby on human rights and speak up. And then, you know, Beijing was basically 
pretty fine with that and sometimes would, would just respond um, to what the primaries would say about certain like political prisoners of Canadian backgrounds and things like that. Um, but the moment it kind of all fell apart was when uh, Meng Wanzhou, the Huawei CFO, was arrested in Vancouver at the behest of U.S. authorities to be extradited to face fraud charges there. And it was part of a you know, years in the making U.S. investigation on Huawei and what it was doing, whether it was violating ground sanctions and a whole complicated swirl of speculation about whether um, the U.S. was also motivated because they felt Huawei was a competitor, a strategic competitor um, to to the U.S. So they kind of focused on this company. Um, So I think when Canada arrested Hmong, um, they were... I think that most Canadians did not understand the extent of the significance of this because in China, she's basically royalty. Um, her dad is a revolutionary figure. He, you know, he was an engineer in the People's Liberation Army. She, Huawei is the country's national champion, like a technology company that is huge and hugely successful um, around the world. So arresting her was like arresting, I don't know, like... Kate Middleton for the UK. Hmm. I'm also curious about the detention of Uyghurs in these camps in China. There's one thing to lobby for human rights when it comes to political prisoners Mm -hmm. and political freedoms, but has the... I mean, we're learning more about it every day, but has that program that China has created where they are detaining up to a million people, maybe even more, has that also dampered relations with with Canada and maybe other countries in the West where, you know, like I said, it's one thing to not have political freedoms. It's another when you have people detained and and clearly some human rights violations on a mass scale occurring in a country. Yeah, so... Yeah, China's been taking political prisoners, anyone, a lot of these people who are seen as critics of the Chinese government, and often um, they might have um, foreign citizenship, and that would be completely ignored by Beijing. So countries that would affect their diplomatic relations, um, including Canada's in the past, when they did uh, detain um, like the Garretts, Julia, Kevin Garrett, like a couple, you know, 10, 10 something years ago. And that was, you know, a sore point in the relations and um, they were released after two years after some negotiations. Um, but when it comes to the Uyghurs, this is on such a bigger scale. Um, a million or more, like you said, according to UN, um, being taken from their homes, you know, separated from their children and brought to these camps. Um, I, I reported on it by talking with people who managed to escape or were released. And they would be 40 to a tiny room, um, shackled. The whole time, um, you know, head shaven, um, very malnourished. So it's, you know, it, people have compared to Holocaust, compared to concentration camps. And, you know, the conditions there in, in some of these camps are, they seem horrifying. Um, so you would think it would be a damper on China's relations with um, different countries. But, you know, a lot of countries haven't actually spoken up that that much about what was happening. It took a long time for a group of countries in the United Nations to even write a letter. And that itself, that process was kind of controversial to even 
sign your country's name to this letter condemning, asking for information about what was happening. Um, so I think this raises points that, again, I explore in detail in my book about how the reliance on China as a export market um, reliance and or kind of hopes that China would bring like so much economic benefits to the country has kind of dominated uh, a lot of the calculus in a lot of countries for a long time to the point where some a massive detention of mostly Muslims is is something that countries hesitated to sign a letter to condemn. Was Canada a party to that letter? Yeah, they were eventually. Um, and only recently, a Canada-China parliamentary committee called what was happening a genocide. Um, so that was a big step um, for a country's parliament, at least part, not like Ottawa officially, but at least a committee within the government calling it a genocide. I think it was an unusual step uh, that a country took. Now, bringing it back to Canada, due to the work of journalists like yourself, your colleague Jeremy Nuttall, Sam Cooper, Ian Young, and others, one name that has come into the public consciousness, especially in British Columbia, is United Front. The mayor of Port Coquitlam, Brad West, explained his take on what this group is. But can you explain it to me? What is the United Front? Later, me and my colleague Jeremy, um, kind of like, like partners in writing about these issues. So United Front is an official department. It's, it sounds really shadowy, like it's a spy novel kind of thing, but there's so much material from the department about the department. Like there's Chinese state media articles all the time about its goals. And it's kind of a mix between soft power and more like espionage, like what, um, say like the CIA would do is kind of a swirl, um, but basically it's trying to convince in different ways, non-communist organizations and individuals to, to do things that are sympathetic and support the Chinese communist party. So it's kind of a mix of incentives and disincentives and in some cases, intimidation and harassment. So um, it's, you know, a department that's really well-resourced. Uh, Australian academics said it might be in the thousands of agents um, that often work alongside uh, police departments. So in recent years, um, like the head of the United Front said things like, oh, we should focus on overseas Chinese students. We should focus on the diaspora and things like that. And you have to remember that um, the whole... Uh, CCP philosophy is that it anyone who has like you know Chinese blood is Chinese and they're people who can serve the uh, Beijing's goals. So they would see someone living in Vancouver who wasn't even born in China, who just whose parents or grandparents are born in China as a potential target, um, and also a potential target to try to silence because um, if they're critical, then they worry that because there is like this huge connection that they feel between anyone of Chinese descent that if criticism comes from someone who looks Chinese and it has a greater potential to spread to inside China and to undermine the party. Um, so, so they're very active. It's kind of 
coming from a point of sort of paranoia to me um, that they devote so much resources to try to target individuals. Uh, sometimes people you would think are completely not powerful, like Chinese students um, living in, in Canada who maybe posted a few social media messages. Um, those would be people who would get calls from um, a Chinese agent trying to get them to stop. Um, wow. Mm -hmm. and, and so how expansive are they in Canada? Like how commonplace is this for someone of Chinese descent to be intimidated by someone who's working for the United Front or is affiliated with the United Front, but effectively an agent of Beijing? Yeah. Um, it's been documented, especially in recent years, where there's been leaks like on WeChat um, in what was it, McMaster's University? Um, there was a Uyghur um, Canadian, uh, Rukie Tradish, who gave a speech at Ontario's McMaster University in February 2019. Um, and her, her talk was monitored. Um, students, um, Chinese international students, some of them interrupted her, recorded her, and then later someone gave her screenshots that showed some of these students had contacted the Chinese embassy in Ottawa about the event. And the embassy actually instructed them to find out more, to kind of basically gather information about who Turnish was in the talk. Um, so we have this proof where the consulate is involved in trying to intimidate uh, a Uyghur Canadian who was trying to talk about human rights issues in China. Um, but of course, like every, it is always denial. Um, Turdish told me, you know, this is United Front, front work. I've called for an investigation, but she's heard nothing. So I think there's still a lot of confusion among Canadian authorities and, and not really capacity at this point to try to investigate the extent of this um, because it is very um, unclear. Like, Someone won't call you and be like, hi, I'm from the United Front. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've spoken to so many people who've been contacted, um, intimidated. And, you know, you interviewed Brad and uh, Mayor Brad West. Um, and he said within his community of 60,000 people in Metro Vancouver, um, already he knows quite a few who have been intimidated, harassed. Um, but no one says, hi, I'm from the United Front. So you can't, it's hard to track. Um, the CSIS knows about them. Um, as far as I did a separate story on Canadian politicians who try to, who end up kind of unknowingly working with people who are pro-Beijing. Um, so I did a separate story about how there's actually no training that's mandated for elected officials about how to identify United Front work and to try not to get wrapped up in it. Because another key part of it is that they try to build influence, like soft power, and um, often they would invite Canadian politicians to these uh, photo ops, like Chinese New Year celebrations, and then um, Pete Fry, a Vancouver councillor, told me that he realizes the hard way. He would go to his events that seemed very innocuous, you know, shake hands. Um, and then it would end up in a pretty propaganda style, very, very pro-Beijing article on, on a website that he's never heard of. And he realized that he was kind of used uh, in a way to grant legitimacy to, to their messages. We'll get into the politicians in, in just a second. When it comes to this idea of Chinese government-affiliated agents intimidating anyone within Canadian borders, 
are there any laws against that? Like, I assume that there must be some. I mean, there's probably harassment laws if it, if it gets very serious, but the idea that a foreign state is meddling in another country's affairs within their borders, like something about that just makes you want to raise the alarm and, you know, shout out from the rooftops that this is happening. Uh, so Australia did a um, review of, of China's foreign influence interference efforts uh, into the whole country, including co-opting in some cases getting people to give money to politicians. Um, and that led to the sweeping change of laws that are counter-interference, um, including, you know, having to register your and disclose your um, affiliation to Chinese government and things like that, and, and banning political donations from from people with, with those ties. Canada doesn't have that. Uh, Canada does have its, you know, certain donor transparency laws, um, but there's no kind of like foreign agent registration, not, um, I don't know if the word's foreign agent, but um, there's no kind of foreign affiliation registration that the U.S. and Australia has. Um, I spoke with different government departments over the years, like as you imagine, every time I write about this, I have to reach out and be like, has anything changed? Have you changed your policies? And they tell me, mm-hmm. you know, they're working on it, especially when it comes to online harassment. They're like, oh, we're, we have to you know, come up with a new framework. It's, you know, it's going to take a long time. Um, And, you know, the Canadian government has suggested that it's working on this reset on China-Canada relations, but we still haven't heard anything about how things will change. Uh, We get acknowledgement that, you know, the laws don't quite reflect the concerns, but nothing concrete on how things will change. And, you know, going back to the whole protest situation outside Benson Gao's house, um, Canadian activists um, have pointed to that scenario as um, Canadian officials tell you if you face this, you should go to your local police. Like if someone's trying to intimidate you, go to the police. Um, But I guess someone seeing what's happening, um, protests for days and police aren't doing anything, they're not likely to, to think that if they get contacted by someone that police will help them or be equipped to help them when we don't have any clear legislation that directly addresses this. And um, like I reported, there's no mandatory training for elected officials. So there's like a lack of awareness, like basic awareness, I feel. How serious is the intimidation and what i mean by that is you know are we seeing people being assaulted are we seeing people suddenly go missing i know there was that incident i believe it was the hong kong protesters in a church and then there were the counter protesters that came in and you know tensions really got quite high and and flared up in that situation when we talk about intimidation are we talking about people that are you know being physically assaulted or suddenly disappearing or anything like that? Um, well, there has been sudden disappearances. Um, in, in Within Canada? Not Canada that I know of. Um, in oh, There were five Hong Kong booksellers. One was a Swedish uh, uh, dual passport and one was um, UK. Actually, I think they actually changed their citizenship. So they were, you know, just UK and Swedish um, residents. Uh, 
citizens, I mean, um, and they were kidnapped from different places around the world, whether it was Hong Kong or on vacation in Thailand. And they ended up um, inside mainland China in prison, um, going on state television, confessing to their crimes and things like that. Um, so definitely kidnapping happens. Um, when it comes to that degree, I think it's no longer United Front work, but it's uh, Chinese police work, uh, Chinese secret police work. Um, United Front often is more covert and more subtle, um, using both incentives and disincentives and kind of like threatening language, but very like vague. Like you will face consequences is often, you know, what people say they get on the phone uh, from these strange men who call them. Um, when it comes to kidnapping certain like high profile people that Beijing wants to face their criminal system for things like these booksellers, they, they publish books that were very unflattering to Xi Jinping and his wife um, and the political elite. And I think that goes to the point where it's uh, secret police. It, it's not United Front work. And so I just want to clarify this. If you are a Chinese dissident and you are in Canada or the United States, it sounds like you are relatively safe. You might face some harassment from certain agents or affiliates, but it sounds like you're relatively safe. It's only when you're actually in China or perhaps different areas of Asia where you would be in trouble. Is that fair to say? I think it's more complicated than that because a lot of time people have family living in China mm. and their family is um, oftentimes directly threatened. So um, I spoke with someone that I write about in my book where um, his uh, agents uh, went to his family's house in, in China and actually got his dad uh, on the phone um, to try to get his son to, to stop posting something on, on Twitter. Um, so a lot of these people, they end up self-censoring or they end up, you know, doing what United Front wants because they're worried about their family, um, extended family still living in China or say Hong Kong or places basically under Chinese control. So I don't think they feel safe. I think they often feel really scared because it's, it would be hard to find someone of a first or second generation immigrant without family in China and without wanting to, to visit. So they may feel scared every time they're at an airport, which has a extradition treaty with China or Hong Kong, uh, that they could be extradited um, to China. So, yeah, I think it's unusual. It hasn't happened yet where someone's actually like hurt or kidnapped living in Canada that we know of. Um, but definitely there's been threats. Like if you talk to Sheree Wong of Alliance Canada Hong Kong, who's done a lot of work in support of the Hong Kong protests, um, she was trying to go to a hotel in, in Vancouver and she had gone through the precaution of registering in a hotel under a different name. But uh, they got her phone number and they called her at the hotel, threatening her, um, saying that someone will come for her. So it sounded like they were threatening to kidnap her and she called police and everything. Uh, for help after that so wow yeah i think a lot of people don't feel safe <laughs> just because we don't know of someone who was um directly kidnapped or hurt by any agents in canada doesn't mean they don't think it's kind of on the verge of happening um yeah so it's so it's 
quite tough. It's it's kind of like um, you know, like Soviet Union when it was like when there is a lot of like people spying on you and monitoring you. It was called like a white terror because you're not sure what's going to happen, who's watching, what the line is that you shouldn't cross. So it's it's kind of like that for a lot of these people who who are critical of Beijing living overseas. I want to talk about Canada's political establishment. You sort of made mention and, and, and had a story about Vancouver City Councillor Pete Fry unwittingly attending an event that was clearly put on by Chinese agents, uh, Chinese government agents, United Front agents, something like that. We've had an incident where a federal minister in Joyce Murray had a WeChat channel that was apparently raising money to sue journalist Sam Cooper. When we talk about Canada's political establishment, how compromised is the political establishment? And whether that's wittingly or unwittingly, how many people on in different layers of government have somehow found themselves, we can call it under the influence of the Chinese government? Yeah, so I wrote about this in Prime Targets, a, a story, a feature for a Toronto Star, our Canadians... Are Canada's local politicians in the sights of Beijing's global PR machine? And it mostly focuses on a politician named Al Richmond. He's a former chair of the Caribou Regional District in Interior, BC. Um, so his case is really interesting. He actually spoke with me for over an hour. I was like, oh, why are you in all these photos of these groups that are like Canada-China friendship groups and things like that, where he's seen giving a speech and shaking hands when the rest of the article is saying things like um, China should have control over South China Sea and, you know, China should have influence in local elections and things like that. Uh, he's also given interviews to Xinhua State Media where he's like, oh, Huawei is great. Um, and then they kind of twisted to make him sound, he told me, to make him sound like really important in Canada. He's a Canadian official um, who is supportive of Huawei and things like that. Um, and he told me like he actively reached out to Chinese consulate and uh, different groups because he wanted to promote tourism to his region. He wanted to promote business ties to his region. And as a local politician, like on kind of like similar to a mayor level, I think it's long been a tradition in Canada where if you're a local politician, your job isn't diplomatic relations. Your job isn't uh, anything to do with federal kind of concerns over country to country relations. Your concern is your constituents and um, promoting business to small businesses in your community. And he was very open with me about that's what he wanted. And he actually wasn't aware of uh, how his interviews and photos would be used um, by certain groups. Because um, a lot of these groups, they seem that their English website is like very different from the Chinese <laughs> language website. Um, you click on the Chinese section and if you can read Chinese, it suddenly becomes a lot more pro propagandist. Um, where they actually go into very uh, sensitive issues that are very pro-Beijing, and then they use these Canadian politician photo ops to kind of legitimize what, uh, like, like, look, we have so much support in Canada. Um, so I think it's a lot of lack of awareness and coupled with this idea that some say are outdated, that if you're, if you're not um, in Ottawa as a, top federal politician that it's not your concern about what's happening 
with Beijing, what's Beijing trying to do? So it's kind of this idea of we're too small fry for China to care about. When, if you know what the United Front does, there's no such thing as you're too unimportant. Like everyone is a potential ally. So actually a lot of, um, you know, soft power influence campaigns are targeted at those local politicians because they have control over more like the hearts and minds of ordinary people. They have control over educational and cultural decisions, things like tourism. So um, I was trying to explain in this article that actually local politicians are prime targets of United Front work. So it sounds like they are prime targets and they're mostly, from what you've discovered, they're mostly unwittingly participants in this. It's not like we have politicians in this country that are knowingly doing the work of Beijing. Is that fair to say? I think that's fair to say for the most part. Um, I think more investigations, good journalist questions are needed. Um, more training for, for every level of, of, of uh, elected officialdom because, you know, it's almost as if like anything in the Chinese language is like in gibberish to people when actually you can get the gist of it pretty easily through a simple Google translate, copy and paste. Um, it's not exactly like hidden away, but kind of like, you know, the sense I get is that if anything's in Chinese or it's a Chinese group and it's kind of confusing, um, people don't even really try to understand it. It's just, it's just like a cipher, um, which I don't really understand. And I think that shows that we need more diversity in newsrooms and in the government so people with that cultural knowledge and language knowledge to kind of help bridge the gaps in knowledge and understanding. There are a lot of people, including my buddy Brad West, mm -hmm. that feel like because of the corporate relationship with companies in Canada and China and because of the political establishment's interest in relations with China, that Canada has been very soft in defending itself. In your estimation, in all the reporting you've done, is Canada doing anything to resist the work of what I think is fair to call foreign interference from China? Um, it keeps, officials keep saying to me that they're working on it. So I think, you know, as a journalist, I can't, I'm not an opinion columnist, so what I would write in an op-ed might be different from what I do, which is just trying to provide the information for people to make up their own minds. Um, so far, most like the general sentiment is from these departments is that we're working on something. <laughs> so people get impatient about what exactly are you working on and what's the delay. Um, but, you know, if you look at the, the work that the Canada-China Relations Committee does, they do seem very on top of it. They're interviewing people and trying to um, uncover kind of extent of what is going on and recommending policy changes. So I think the, the, the uh, I think the fact that this committee, which is new, newly formed, is working um, shows that at least a proportion of the Canadian government is serious about solving kind of our knowledge gap, which is pretty apparent <laughs> about, about China, what China's trying to do. Um, but actually the, the liberals voted against the formation of this committee. So you can read into that what you want. So the liberals did not want this committee to be formed. And so it doesn't exist. 
Um, it exists because because the opposition parties, NDP, conservatives, they enough voted, so this committee was able to be formed and okay. work in kind of like a semi-independent manner, where they're kind of a subcommittee that looks at things. They can call. Um, they actually called uh, John McCallum uh, last week, I believe, to to testify. Um, so they're doing this work and doing. You know, they're doing, a, they're very active in the past year, even during the pandemic. I want to shift gears as we end, as we end the podcast here. And I want to talk about Chinese people, Asian people living in Vancouver, living in BC, living in Canada. Mm-hmm. You've made mention to this already. And I think it is important for people to understand that Chinese people are different than the Chinese government. And even Chinese people within China are very diverse. Mm-hmm. It almost sounds silly to say, but people do conflate the two. And unfortunately, this has real world consequences as we've seen the incidence of anti-Asian hate crimes rise dramatically this year. Mm -hmm. Now, you've covered a lot of COVID's cultural effects on mood. We we joked around about you covering COVID dreams and you've even covered COVID rage. Mm -hmm. You've also covered the spike in hate crimes against Asians and Chinese folks in bc what kind of numbers have we seen this year in terms of the hate crimes against chinese canadians in vancouver or bc or canada as a whole i guess it was kind of like a powder keg where for years i think there's been such growing resentment and scapegoating of people of chinese descent for all sorts of things like unaffordability in toronto and vancouver that was because you know chinese people are corrupt or things like that um but, but to the point where it's not where people can't talk about factors, including foreign investment in a way that doesn't get become very personal. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. and in East Asians, like we also wrote about how there's this um, perception that they're taking jobs and things like that. Like there's a lot of just simmering racism. So when COVID-19 hit, um, it became... I think it kind of exploded where actually a lot of uh, Chinese Canadians and Asian Canadians, people who look any vaguely East Asian did no longer felt safe because there are incidents like an elderly man with dementia being um, hit in the, like in the head, like um, to the floor. He was like 92 years old in a Vancouver convenience store and people and all these attacks, people are talking about COVID and blaming um, these people for bringing coronavirus to Canada. So, yeah, there's definitely the scapegoating. Um, not saying that everyone's like that, but when there's this long-standing kind of racism and stereotyping and conflation of the Chinese government, of Chinese people, um, and a lack of acknowledgement that there's this uh, so much diversity, so much socioeconomic diversity and, and people's experiences, some of them having spent generations in Canada, um, that's, that kind of leads to these people. I think that's led to the spike in hate crimes. So what kind of numbers are we seeing in terms of the the spike that we're talking about? Okay. So anti-Asian hate crime incidents rose by 87% in the Vancouver area compared to last year. Oh no, not 87%, 878%. So wow, nine hundred percent, according to Vancouver Police, um, in, compared to the same period in twenty nineteen. So, 
these were incidents where it was clearly like racially motivated. Um, across Canada, a poll in June found that nearly one quarter of respondents of yeast or South Asian descent said to be the target of racial slurs or insults in the spring. Um, <laughs> so, you know, and in Vancouver, where there's many people of Chinese descent or Asian descent, you see a nearly 900% increase in actually crimes. So not just like, um, I think calling someone a slur isn't just considered a crime, um, but hate crime would be more serious. So, so, you know, it's, it was something that like everyone was affected by, like my dad, he would, he was actually practicing his Kung Fu. <laughs> it sounds very stereotypical, but reading about all of these people, often elderly people being attacked on the street, like kind of sucker punched and things like that. Um, my dad was like practicing his self-defense skills and getting my mom to like practice her self-defense skills. And I thought that was really sad that all of these people who um, contributed so much to society, my dad, we you know was a volunteer um, in, in Canadian schools as a coach for a long time. And, you know, that they would feel scared to walk down the street uh, and felt that was really sad. And, you know, things like the lions in Vancouver Chinatown, you know, those lion statues being graffitied multiple times, being um, kind of damaged multiple times. It was also symbolically very kind of gutting for, for a lot of people. Well, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that about your dad, that, that he has that type of anxiety. You know, after 9-11, I remember an incident where in our house we had some Islamic art and it was visible from outside of the house because we had these big bay windows. And I remember after 9-11, uh, and, and we started to hear incidents of, you know, any, any person with basically brown skin in terms of they could be Sikhs and, and, and wearing a turban and they were attacked. Mm -hmm. And my parents got very worried and they ended up taking, you know, that art down for fear of whatever might happen. And, and so... I understand that. And, and I think culturally, you know, the challenge has always been separating regular people from these political affairs. Mm -hmm. How do you think we should tackle the very serious problem of Chinese authoritarianism and this foreign interference in Canada without enabling hatred towards Chinese people and, and Chinese Canadians? Yeah, I think you kind of have to get to the root of it. So, um, if the Italian government did something that Canadians didn't like, I think it's very unlikely that someone with Italian roots would be attacked in, in, in Canada. It's definitely, you know, rooted in, in racism um, where anyone who's not white, <laughs> like literally anyone who's not white living in Canada is not fully Canadian is somehow much more of a foreigner you know, regardless of how long they've lived in the country. Um, it kind of goes against this kind of idea that Canada is this mosaic of immigrants and we're supposed to be proud of that. But, you know, the reality is that a lot of people don't feel like they're welcomed because um, they're being seen as outsiders when something doesn't go well in, you know, their original uh, home countries relations with Canada, suddenly they become 
scapegoats or suddenly they become victims of hate crimes. So I don't think it's just like a China issue where we have to, first of all, like be careful about language, like not calling it, um, not saying China is doing this to us, but saying Beijing has this policy or the Chinese government arrested Canadians and not just say, you know, Chinese people. Um, but it goes beyond that where we have to look at um, why Canada still has this deep-seated racism where white Canadians are seen as fully Canadians and everyone else is just you know, around <laughs> and their belonging is so conditional. Um, so with this year with Black Lives Matters, um, I think a lot of it is kind of bubbling to the surface where people realize, including white Canadians realize that um, they might have some unconscious biases and they may have seen someone with a different skin color and been like, oh, where are you from? And not accepted the answer. <laughs> if that person says, I was right. here. <laughs> yeah, like, I'm sure you've experienced that. Like, what are you? <laughs> It's, it's not um, harmless as people think. It's kind of the root of this kind of treating people as outsiders, which at its worst consequences leads to things like hate crimes and leads to trouble in, in tackling um, important issues like uh, foreign influence campaigns here in Canada because some people are um, understandably worried that raising criticism of Chinese government would lead to backlash against Chinese people. You know, politicians shouldn't have to worry about this happening, but unfortunately there might be some truth in that. <laughs> it might lead to people lashing out against anyone who looks Asian. Yeah. And so then I, I guess the onus becomes in tackling these very serious issues, it has to be emphasized and reemphasized that when we're talking about the Chinese government, we're not talking about Chinese people, just as when we're talking about Islamic terrorists, we're not talking about Muslims, yeah. right? Well, even in, in headlines, like it's shorter to just say, oh, China, but you have to write, I think, Chinese government or Beijing is like an easy way to get around it. So even saying China's doing this or whatever, it's, it's also misleading because China has 1.4 billion people. So... Hmm. <laughs> just saying China is also misleading because it, it makes it seem like everyone in China feels the same way, which is not true. Like there's so many people who are, you know, sacrificing their lives and freedoms to try to push back the message against uh, authoritarianism and human rights violations of their own government. So we do them such a disfavor by saying, simplifying. Mm-hmm. Joanna, I have to say, your name has come up repeatedly in terms of guests for this show. A lot of people have wanted you on this podcast. I'm so glad we're able to do this. I learned a lot, and I think this is one of those fascinating realms of life in Metro Vancouver where global tensions are literally playing out in our neighborhood. So just to wrap up, as a Chinese-Canadian yourself, did you ever imagine a socio-cultural political tempest like this in Vancouver? And what I mean by that is we're literally talking about agents for a foreign government, protests in suburban neighborhoods, the biggest trial in the world right now. And Vancouver is the epicenter of theater for all these foreign policy issues. Yeah, I mean, I sort of expected 
some extent, but not to this extent. I think uh, Hmong's arrest really accelerated a lot of what was happening. I actually, I lived in China, Hong Kong for seven years working there, and I was kind of really tired and wanted to go back to Canada and write about other things. Um, but then I moved back in the summer of 2018, and then a few months later, Hmong was arrested, and then my friend Michael Kovrig was arrested in retaliation, and he's uh, facing now two years in prison as basically a hostage. So, yeah, it's kind of unbelievable, and yeah, like everyone in Vancouver or in BC, I think now has some input on what is going on, and. Um, yeah, it's so important to find out more because it actually affects so many more people than you realize. Um, it might be like your neighbor or your classmate who's experiencing, you know, the ramifications of this. Um, if you have any connection to Hong Kong, I think it's been a really hard year for people um, because of the Hong Kong national security law, which basically took away a lot of the freedoms uh, that Hong Kong was supposed to enjoy until the year 2047 when the Sino-British Declaration uh, would expire. So a lot of Hong Kong Canadians are now like, oh, I don't even know if I'm safe to go back to Hong Kong, including myself. Uh, I was born in Hong Kong. Um, so yeah, we're definitely in the middle of things and having such a huge Chinese population, I think we're kind of geared to to see more of um, what's happening internationally playing out in, in real people's daily lives. Mm-hmm. Joanna, is this the platform you're using to announce your book? What can you tell us more about that? Um, no. Questions. <laughs> <laughs> so- <laughs> I was like, damn. Like I wrote about it, like in my book. So I was like, if you're interested, you should look out for my official announcement. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, it's going to be out next year, and. I will let you know more once, um, you know, we're trying to get like the cover and everything finalized before I kind of officially announce it. What is your call to action? Where can people find you? This is your chance to plug your social media and everything else. Uh, I I think I acted quickly on social media. Like I kind of claimed my name on everything. So it's just my name, like Joanna Chu on Twitter and my website and everything like that. And if you'd like to reach out, I spend too much time on social media. So I will actually likely answer your questions. And if if you're like, oh, I don't really understand what you said about this, like, I'd love to chat with you because it's like a big passion of mine to um, have more people interested in this issue. So it's not just like the journalists you named who are like often doing this, like it'd be great for, you know, like five times the number of researchers and journalists in Canada to be tracking these issues. Like, I'd love that. Awesome. Well, like I said, this was so informative. I love your work. You're one of the best in the game. I'm in awe of what you do. And I just want to wish you and your family the best for the holidays and the best in 2021. And also, you have to follow up with me on my dreams about getting that dolphin tattoo. I'm sure the readers of the Toronto Star are wondering about it. So I feel like we have to do a follow up at some point. You have to do a follow up. I think maybe people's dreams have evolved as the year has gone stranger and stranger. So now our dreams are just total... (laughs) you know, I don't know, hellscapes. <laughs> I'm, I'm keeping a dream journal just for you, Joanna. Okay. <laughs> Thanks for, you know, having this platform to, to talk about these issues in such depth. Like you can go through so much more in a podcast and you can't even like in an article. So thanks for your work. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Bye. 
people, what a treat for the holidays. A world-famous journalist right here on This Is Van Color telling us about some pretty incredible and pretty troubling things happening right here in our city. She is a national correspondent for the Toronto Star. She is the incredible Joanna Chu. And I am Mo Amir telling you that in a city where you can be anything, be colorful. Peace.